into this. God, thank you again for this morning. Um, God, thank you again. We, we just, you are the best of, of friends to us. And so, Jesus, we, we honor you as that friend. We honor you as the creator of all things. We honor you as the one in whom is found all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We honor you as the redeemer and the savior. And now, Jesus, we ask that by your spirit, you'd give us clarity according to your word. Jesus, we know you love your word and you've promised that there is much good to be found. And so, Lord, we, we step into your word. We lean into it this morning, seeking to understand it by your spirit. So give us spiritual eyes and ears to receive your word. Um, Jesus, let it not be, let it not be, again, just kind of routine, hearing scripture again. But spirit, we pray that you would attend your word with power. Give me even thoughts and clarity for the good of your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the last couple weeks, we've been working with some visual concepts, right, that Paul gives us. Paul, remember, in chapter 2, verse 6, he talked about the walk of the Christian life. He says, as you have received Jesus Christ as Lord, he says, walk accordingly. Walk as you have received him. And so we talked about the walk of the Christian life, referencing the fact of, of faith and repentance being kind of our role. It's this activity of trusting in God and orienting our hearts and lives to Jesus in this journey of developing a relationship with him. And so our role is faith and repentance. Our role is dependence upon Jesus. God's role is grace. Right? God meets us with favorable love and enablement to walk this life out. And so we, we talked about the walk of the Christian life. As you received him, so walk in him. But last week, then we also talked about the warnings of the Christian life. Remember, we compared it to Yellowstone, you know, and, and you have these geyser fields, you know, these geothermal pools out there that you step into and you're going to melt your face off kind of a thing. And so the, there are these platforms that you are to walk according to, right? And as you walk them out, you begin to see there are warning marks along the way that say, hey, don't step off the platform. Should you step off the platform, you are in danger. And Paul would say something similar. The walk of the Christian life is one of faith and dependence upon Christ. And don't be, as he says, pulled away from Jesus. Don't be taken captive, as he said last week, by philosophies and just kind of worldly understanding of, of life. And also, don't be taken captive by religious regulations, Endless rules and restrictions that God hasn't outlined in his word. Paul says those things will take you captive. On one hand, philosophy can take you captive from Christ. On the other hand, he says don't live under the burden, the condemnation, the yoke of religiosity. Right? That's not life. That's not the life abundantly that Jesus came to give you. And so Paul has said, here's, here's the walk of the Christian life. It's dependence upon Jesus. Here are the warnings. Be careful that you're not moved away from Jesus. But folks, is it really that simple? 
Think about the world you live in, for crying out loud. Thank you, think about your own kind of inner struggles at work. Think about the circumstances and situations uh, around you. Think about the agenda of the world and the value system of the world that again and again we are inundated with. How is the Christian, this is the question this morning, how is the Christian to live in this culture? How is the Christian to live in this culture? You know, from what Paul has already said, he's given us some warnings, but it seems a little more complicated than that, right? Uh, you know, and what typically folks do in terms of like trying to figure out how the Christian is to live in this culture, the, the, the Christian at times will say, you know what, no, I, I, I can live one foot in the world and one foot in Jesus and everything will be okay. This is the, what we call syncretism. You know, when you, when you synchronize something, you, you bring it together and kind of try to create harmony out of it. You get a bunch of synchronized swimmers together, right? And you throw them in the pool and you say, okay, do these things all together. And the idea of this syncretism is like, we're going to take Jesus and his value system and his truth that he brings, and we're going to take culture and the philosophies and values that are, and in some way we're going to try to harmonize these things together. This was the issue for God's people in the Old Testament, again and again and again. God brought some of his most severe judgment upon his people for doing this, for taking the truth, his truth, his law, and, and, and trying to mesh it in with all kinds of worldly perspective and paganism, right? It goes all the way back, if, if you want illustration, it goes all the way back to, you know, as God's people are being delivered from Egypt. It's like, yes, we are going to follow Yahweh. We are going to walk in all your ways, Yahweh. And then in just a moment's turn, it's like, let's throw together a golden calf. Doesn't that sound wonderful, right? And so what are they trying to do? They're trying to live according to Yahweh, but also then blending paganism into Yahweh's ways, right? God brings some of his most severe, you, you think about the Old Testament and the exiles that take place. Literally, God allows his people to be defeated and taken into other countries to be slaves. Right? Those, those judgments are a result of this idea of syncretism. That we're going to kind of just do Old Testament law and do the sacrifices and, yeah, perhaps even go to synagogue and go to the temple and do the things that we're supposed to do. But also then we're going to have all these pagan rituals as well. We're going to take on this worldly philosophy of, as well. Within Christianity, that is not an option. Okay, Syncretism is not an option to, to live one foot in and one foot out to kind of try to bring... Christ and culture together and reconcile them together is not what the Bible would call us to. On the other hand, and many of us come from this background, oh my goodness, what we end up trying to do on the other hand is like build walls up, right? We're going we're gonna, to, just as Paul has said, we're going to create all these rules and regulations to now keep us unstained from the world, right? And so we you know, we set up our, almost like our own, our own little cult, our own little commune with all our rules and regulations that God never lays out in his word. But hey, to keep ourselves separated from the world, we're going to create all these extra rules so that the world doesn't influence us. It's where we get the ultimate, you know, categories of 
the secular, the, the secular and sacred divide. Right? It's because we put up all these walls and no, we can't engage in culture. Right? So it's, it's even the monastics. If you know much about the monastics, early church history, you begin to see the separate, we're going to go live out in the, we're going to get out of the city and we're going to go live up in the mountains, right? Because we're going to be unstained from the world. we got to get out of this culture. That is not our calling as Christians, to escape culture, right? Jesus would even say in John chapter 17, just before he's about to go die on our behalf, he will pray, he will pray to the Father about the disciples that are following him, and, and his goal, his, his desire is to see that his disciples would actually live in the world as those who are sanctified by his truth. In other words, that they would live in this world like light shining in darkness. That's the idea that scripture calls us to. And so, once again, the question stands. Like, if it's not syncretism, and it's not like some sort of separation from the culture, then how are we as Christians to live in this culture? Paul points to it in these four verses. Okay? What Paul does for us is he gives us another concept. You know, Paul, Paul loves concepts. He, he's talked, you know, in, in chapter one, he's talked about us being rooted in the gospel. So it's the picture of the tree and its roots in the gospel. He talks about walking, right, the Christian life. He compares the journey of the Christian life to this walk. And now, as you look at the text in verses one through four of chapter three, you begin to see Paul referring to this concept of things that are above and things that are below. Things where Christ is seated and things then of the earth. It's a, it's a new concept that he's now approaching in the text here. And the, con, the concept that Paul is painting for us in referring to things above and things below is a reference really to the kingdom of Christ. Because what does he say? He says the things above is where who is seated? Talk to me. Christ. Christ is seated, right? He's seated at the right hand of God, which is this right hand of power and authority, right? So the things that are above, Paul says, is the kingdom. It's where Christ is ruling and reigning. Now the concept here, I'm going to draw the concept and then explain the categories here. Paul is, is saying that the things that are above are not somewhere like beyond the sky. You know, typically we think of Christ's rule and reign and his presence, and it's heaven somewhere beyond the, the sky out there, some ethereal place, you know. Uh, and that's not the concept that Paul is showing us here. What he's actually demonstrating is that the things above are now crashing into the things below, the things of the earth, or we could say it's crashing into culture. The idea is that the kingdom of Christ is actually now crashing into earth. It's the things above have now come to earth. How do we know this? How do we know that the kingdom where Jesus' authority is, is actually come to earth? Jesus said when he came to earth, he says, my kingdom has come. Mark chapter 1. 
He's like, my rule and reign has now come to earth. If I'm here, my kingdom's come. Jesus will also say then, Matthew chapter 13, I believe it is, Luke 11, he'll talk about how if he casts out demons by the finger of God or by the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, you can know that the kingdom of God has come to earth. The kingdom of God, once again, isn't something way out there. The kingdom of God, the rule and reign of Jesus now is crashing in to culture. It's crashing into this existence here on earth. Jesus then will ultimately go to the cross and be raised from the dead. And it's almost as if Jesus is entered into this world and he has planted his flag so that his kingdom is irrevocable. It's not going anywhere, in other words. It won't be rivaled. It won't be conquered. It will only be more and more and more and more realized throughout the globe. This is exactly what Paul has referenced in chapter 1. He talks about the gospel. You remember what, how we referred to the gospel? We oftentimes think of the gospel as Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. True. But there are bigger concepts to the gospel, and that is the good news that now a new king reigns. And he reigns over all things. It's Jesus. Jesus is the gospel. He is the good news. And the good news is that Jesus now rules and reigns as one who's conquered our sin, has conquered the enemy, right? And now he rules and reigns over all, right? That's the idea of the gospel. And Paul says that this gospel, this good news of Christ's rule and reign over all things is being realized more and more globally. That's chapter one. It's bearing fruit throughout the world. This kingdom of Christ has come. It's crashing in to culture. Now, Jesus will refer to his kingdom as being not of this world. Remember when he's on trial with Pilate? Pilate will be questioning, interrogating him, trying to get some clarity as to what the Jews are all concerned about. And Pilate's kind of confused because he's looking at Jesus saying, this guy seems innocent and he's not much of a threat. And, and Jesus will say, I am a king, but I'm not a king of this. My kingdom is not of this world. Jesus is saying, in other words, that his kingdom is not crashing into culture by way of military conquest. Right? It's not clashing into culture by way of sword and spear. Jesus hasn't come just flexing his muscles and demonstrating his power and being that type A personality, I'm going to conquer all things here. That, that's not the way of Christ's kingdom. Christ's kingdom, as evidenced in Christ himself, Christ came not as this military conquering king, but as one who is full of what? Grace and truth. The Apostle John will, will be like, we beheld his glory, right? His, his beauty, his value, his worth, we, we beheld it. And it was so incredible. And you're thinking like, oh, like Jesus was all so strong and, you know, heaven was like shining through him and this amazing experience. No, John's like, no, he was so different than you and me. He was so different than this world. He, he came brimming, full, pouring over with grace and with truth. This is the king, and therein, this is the nature of the kingdom. It doesn't come in military conquest. It comes in love. It comes in humility. It comes in graciousness. It comes in forgiveness. It comes in all the ways that is unlike 
the world that we live in. Jesus as king came by way of grace and truth. His kingdom is evidenced that way. And Jesus then will say more about his kingdom. He'll say, Matthew chapter 13, he'll say that it's like leaven in a lump of dough. You don't see it, but man, it, it is having its influence. It's having its impact. It's, in, it's invading the whole lump of dough. Jesus will say it's, it's like leaven. It's not by eye. It's, it's, it's spiritual in nature. My kingdom is like leaven. But he, he'll also then compare the kingdom to a pearl of great price. Remember those stories? The pearl or the treasure that's found in the field? And, and he'll say the kingdom is something in which an individual will give up everything. He'll sell everything in order to attain this pearl or this treasure. And the idea isn't there, like, the idea isn't that, okay, now as Christians we need to, like, sell everything we have and, like, now seek this, this treasure thing or whatever. The idea is surrender. Like, when, when we see the beauty and wonder of Jesus, his kingdom, his rule and reign, it's like, I will give up everything in order to gain that. I, I will surrender all things in order to gain that. I'll, I'll allow all things in my life to be reordered, redefined in order to gain that. Jesus will say, if you're going to enter into my kingdom, you have to become like a who? Child. A child. It, it, w- the entrance is by way of humility. In other words, I'm checking all of my, my worldly prominence and my achievements and the letters after my name and my own pro- I'm checking all of that at the door in order to come into this thing that is beyond, beyond value. It is the kingdom of God. It's, it's worth like letting go of everything in order to have, to attain this kingdom. Jesus says, this is my rule and reign that's clashing into culture. It's something that you can't see. It's spiritual in nature. It comes by grace and truth. And, and oh, for those who enter into it, they, they give up everything, willing that all things would be reordered and redefined in order to have a place there, right? Jesus will then say, it's so beautiful. He'll say, my kingdom is like a tree. And it's the place where all the birds can find their belonging. They're just nesting out in the tree. It's a place of security. It's a place of belonging. It's a place in some sense of of shelter. Jesus is saying, my kingdom is that for my people. It's a place where they can belong. It's a place where they can find shelter. It's a place of safety. Jesus is saying, this kingdom that comes, grace and truth is like the ethic of it all. It's the thing that comes and it's, it's spiritual in nature. It's not exactly real. You can't necessarily quantify it or even see it necessarily, but it's having its impact. It's, it's having its effect upon this world. And it's for all those who are in it, man, it's like a place of security and rest under the rule and reign of Jesus. Now, that's the kingdom. What's the culture? We're pretty aware <laughs> of the culture, right? We're, we're, so much of life is trying to get the culture out of us, right? Because it is so invaded us. And I think what Paul has in view here is what he's previously talked about. It's these philosophies of the world 
that are empty, right, and truthless. They're deceptive. And he says that these philosophies don't accord with Christ, but they accord with human tradition. We're doing this because it's always worked, right? And it accords with, check this out, elemental spirits. We didn't exactly touch on that too much last week. He says you're going to have these philosophies that accord with with human tradition and elemental spirits. And he said you're also going to have, very similar to what's happening here, you're also going to have excessive regulations and rules that Scripture never places upon you. But again, it's inspired by elemental spirits. And you have to sit back and say, okay, what in the world are these elemental spirits? I think what Paul is referring to is exactly what took place within the Garden of Eden. What did Satan do? He said, here's another, here's a better way of life, Adam and Eve. Take what you want, do what you will, according to your own sense of wisdom, according to your own desires and wants. Like, you don't have to live according to God's ways. Like, he doesn't have your best in mind. He's actually holding good from you. He's actually not good. So, so here you go. Take this and let this be your satisfaction. Let this be your understanding of life. Let this be your meaning of life. Let this be your goal in life. Behind the inner workings of our culture is, as Paul states elsewhere, the God of this world who drives this this system of values. And the system of values isn't necessarily, and you have to hear it, it isn't necessarily by perspective bad. There's actually some good values that our world tends to carry. And the point being is Satan is fine with you having a successful life. He's fine with you knowing kind of some kind of morality of good and wrong. He's fine with you doing well and achieving the American dream. He is actually good with that as long as you don't gain Christ. And you say, well, what's so, what's so ultimately you know, evil about, about that? Well, it's the fact of the matter that Paul is ultimately getting to that we referenced even before we began our gathering is that Jesus is the creator of the ends of the earth. He gives life and breath to everyone. And so even to take advantage of of, of wisdom that is practically beneficial to me, to take advantage of the common graces that God has given all, is ultimately to take advantage of those apart from Christ, is, is ultimately my damnation. Don't just think that sin is all these really bad things. Sin is actually doing really good things, just divorced from Christ. Right? Go, go, go drill in you know, wells in the, the backlands of Africa for the people there. Oh, that's a good thing. Yeah, sure, it brings good things to people, right? But that is even an act of damnation in itself is if it isn't ultimately given Christ the glory, the one who actually gave you the life and breath to do those good things, who would supply the water and the know-how to get the water to you so that you can actually benefit others. Like worldliness in this culture ain't all bad, but it's bad when it's divorced from Christ because Christ is the creator. He's the Lord of all, right? So this culture is going to bring about all kinds of human philosophy and good things. It'll seem, even as Paul has said, it'll seem wise. It'll seem plausible. But he's saying, don't be tricked by those things. Make sure Christ 
is the one that you're focused in on. So when Paul talks about things that are above and setting your mind there, things below, he's not talking about two categories separated from one another, like heaven somewhere out there and we got earth and we just kind of endure this life here and now until heaven actually arrives. It's not that kind of concept. The concept is no, heaven in one sense has arrived. It's why Jesus can actually pray the Lord's Prayer saying, let your kingdom come to earth as it is in heaven. Right? He's brought the kingdom. And now the prayer of God's people is, oh yeah, let this kingdom be more and more and more realized throughout this world. But folks, it still puts us in this place, asking the question, how, how, how are we as individuals, as Christians, to live in this culture? Here's the answer, here's the big point. Christians are to live in this culture, and I'm stealing this from another uh, writer, it's kingdom down, not culture up. What do we mean by that? For Christians, we don't begin with the mindset of the world and try to figure out Christianity accordingly. Right? We just don't start with the world system, with worldly values, and say, okay, we're going to try to make sense of this by the kingdom. Right? We don't live culture up, we live kingdom down. We set our minds on the things above so that we can make sense out of the culture below. Does that make sense? So Christians are called to live kingdom down, setting our minds there. You know, the old terminology is, oh, Christians, they've just become so heavenly minded that they're of no earthly good. And Paul is saying, no, that doesn't fit Christianity. True Christianity is everything other than that. It is to say that we are so kingdom-minded that all we are now is earthly good. Because now we can see truth and error. We can see good and what is bad. We can be individuals who now are agents of this kingdom to bring light into darkness, to bring grace and truth to where there is none. You see? And so to be a Christian, in fact, is to be of incredible earthly good. But Paul says, seek the things that are above, not the things that are in earth. We begin with the biblical perspective. We begin with the perspective of the kingdom. We learn of Christ. We learn of his ethics. We learn of his, what, how he has created the world. And we live that out shining like lights in darkness. Christians are to live in this culture kingdom down, not culture up. Now, a few things. I'm going to get to some practical things as we, as we wrap things up. Paul says, and you can see it from the text, verse 1, he says, seek the things that are above. Some of your translations will say, set your heart on things that are above. And the very next verse, he'll say, set your minds on things that are above, right? So he has in view head and heart, right? So on one hand, he's saying, set your heart on the things that are above. Your heart is is like the seat of your affections. It's like the, the core of your desires, right? When you, when you think of the heart of the matter, you know, we use that phrase in our culture. Well, the heart of the matter is the core of the matter. And the same thing is true here. It's the, our heart. It's the seat of really who we are and the, our true desires and affections deep within. And so Jesus is saying, set the core of your heart's desire here. In other words, the tensions that a Christian will feel living as those who are 
kingdom down, right? You're going to feel this tension between pleasures. You're going to feel this tension between desires, right? And so Paul is saying, let those desires, discipline your desires again in dependence upon God. You're, you're trusting in his grace. You're going to Jesus. I want to see your glory. I want to see your beauty. I want you to be my ultimate treasure in all things. You need to captivate my heart. It's a battle for, for pleasure when it comes to 